Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, the text reads, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So reads the word of the living God. Keep calm and carry on. Were the words printed on the last of three posters made in Great Britain in the outbreak of World War II. For publicity, propaganda, and national encouragement, they made three posters. The first one read, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. The second poster read, freedom is in peril. Freedom is in danger. Defend it with all your might. But then keep calm and carry on was the third and final poster. And this was only to be released if Germany invaded Great Britain. As history would have it, that never happened. So the poster was never officially released. But this image and this poster became famous in the year 2000 because copies of it were rediscovered. And it's famous and used now for encouragement, but for the most part, parody. I've seen some of these posters that say, keep calm and hate Mondays. Keep calm and empty the dishwasher if finished. Or keep calm and dance on. But if we go back to the original intent for this poster, the national authorities of Great Britain, if the war got really bad and became seemingly overwhelming, they wanted to give the people straightforward encouragement to keep calm and carry on. And it's a good word. In Proverbs 25, 11, the scripture reads, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. In a word more fitting, and in, and in an even greater measure of encouragement, we see Jesus in the text we've just read tell his disciples to essentially keep calm and carry on, or more specifically, to keep calm and pray on. In this text, we find ourselves towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Gospel of Matthew as a whole is presenting Jesus to us as the long-awaited Messiah and King. And the Sermon on the Mount is King Jesus preaching on his kingdom, calling his disciples to live the kingdom life in a fallen world, while also bidding those outside of his kingdom to come to him for life and for true life. But reading the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, you'll see that Jesus gives high, high demands of his disciples. 
He speaks of what it means to be truly blessed, but he says that comes with recognition of your spiritual bankruptcy. It means you have to rejoice at being persecuted for his sake and being salt and light before the world, telling them of Christ's truth radically fighting lusts, loving enemies, giving, fasting, and praying with true motives, serving God over money. In the immediate context in chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 says to not judge fellow, fellow believers, but to deal with your own sin rather than hypocritically look towards others. And yet in verse 6, you have to be wise and discerning to recognize who are dogs or pigs when you're proclaiming the truth to people in the world. To put it simply, in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So thus far, Jesus is standing on this mountain and he's preaching high, high demands. And in many ways, the content of this sermon shows us how deeply we need the preacher of this sermon. The Sermon on the Mount time and time again will bring us to our need of the King who is also the only Savior. But in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, in light of all of these high demands, Jesus encourages his disciples to come to him in faith and to follow him as King, to keep calm and carry on, to pray on, because you have a good Father in heaven who cares for you, who will sustain you, and who will provide everything you need to persevere in following King Jesus in this fallen world. In this text, Jesus calls and commands us to respond to his teaching and faith with prayer. He understands our need and reassures us that we are heard when we cry out to God as his disciple. To put it plainly, in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, there's three promises that animate us to persistent prayer, giving assurance that our Father hears us and helps us to follow Christ. This text gives three promises that animates us to persistent prayer, giving assurance that our Father hears us and helps us to follow Christ. To put it another way, this text encourages us with the incomparable goodness of God our Father so that we'll prayerfully follow Christ our King. It presents to us the incomparable goodness of God our Father so that we'll prayerfully with confidence follow Christ our King. We'll look at this text just from two headings, break it up into two parts. Verses 7 through 8, promises with persistent prayer. Promises with persistent prayer. And then verses 9 and 11, the preeminence of our Heavenly Father. The preeminence of our Heavenly Father. So we got promises with persistent prayer and the preeminence of our Heavenly Father. So we come to our first heading in verses 7 through 8, promises with persistent prayer. So this first section reads, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So Jesus gives three commands and promises here pertaining to persistent prayer. And notice, he doesn't say ask, ask, ask. 
Rather, he says, ask, seek, and then knock. He's poetically emphasizing the intensity and the persistence with which we must pray in following him. And it's almost like he's painting a picture of a child who is in need of their parents. So they ask for their help, but the parent doesn't hear. So, the, so then the child goes seeking to find the parent and then eventually sees that the parent is in their room. So he knocks on the door. There's a, there, there's a growing intensity here in this text, pushing us towards persistent prayer. And we know that Jesus is speaking of prayer because he begins by saying, ask. And this is all in the context of one sermon. Jesus already talked about prayer in Matthew 6, 5 through 15. In Matthew 6, 8, he says, your father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. So the asking that disciples of Jesus does, it's directed towards God our Father. And I say persistent prayer when we read verse 7 and 8, where Jesus encourages us to ask, seek, and knock. It's persistent prayer because the sense of these verbal commands in the original is to ask and keep on asking, to knock and to keep on knocking, to seek and to keep on seeking. These are not one-time things, but to keep calm and to continually pray on. Persistent prayer is to be pervasive in your life as a believer. You see, prayer is the objective measurement of your dependence upon God. And prayer is a chief exercise of faith. But if we're to be honest here, especially when talking about prayer, as believers, we often struggle when it comes to prayer, and that's because we are indeed saved sinners who are being sanctified, who struggle in faith. But we must thank God that Jesus is a friend and savior of sinners who receives us and transforms us and commands us towards prayer for our good. His commands for, for persistent prayers for our good in following him in this fallen world. Prayer is how we worship our God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Prayer is how we delightfully depend upon our Lord. It's how we intercede for others. It's how we commune with God and confess our sins to God and receive the forgiveness that there is in Christ Jesus. Prayer is how we cry out to God and express our needs to him, petitioning for his help that we would live for his glory. So by way of application, let me tell you, believer here today, do not see prayer as just a check as just a box to check off, as something to just get out of the way on your schedule. See prayer as a beautiful privilege you have to commune with your Lord. When we look back to the text, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. This is the first command and promise here in this text. And this petition for asking pertains to all that Jesus has been preaching about. Not hypocritically judging your brother or sister in the faith, dealing with your own sin, having wisdom to discern believer from unbeliever and how you are to deal with people. 
Or like in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, asking God's help for you to store up treasures in heaven rather than to store up treasures on earth. Or Matthew 5, 8, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When Jesus says ask here, it's pertaining to all that he's been talking about in terms of following him in this fallen world. I say that just to emphasize that when Jesus says ask and it will be given to you, my brothers and sisters, this is not a blank check for us to just get whatever we want. It's not a celestial slot machine. It's not a magic formula. It's not a prayer wand to make God do whatever we want. It's in the context of Matthew 6.10. Your will be done and your kingdom come. You see, we exist to be and to do what God wills, not for God to do and be what we will for him to be and do. Disciples of Jesus, I also want to direct your attention, just looking at verse 7 still, ask and it will be given to you. We should see that we aren't firstly go-getters, hustlers, or self-made, but we're asking people. We're pleading to God for his grace, for his mercy, for his help, and for his strength. Just think of your conversion and your salvation. You ask God to save you through Christ. You ask for his forgiveness. Christians are asking people. We don't move on from that. We're asking God for his help and for his direction in life as we follow Christ. And the promise is plain in the beginning of verse 8. For everyone who asks, receives. And we can think about James 1.5. James 1.5, which reads, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So when we ask God for wisdom and direction to follow him in Christ, how we've been called to in the word, we will receive the grace and the aid and the help that we need. We'll receive the wisdom. But see here that prayer for the Christian is not a last resort, but it's a first response. It should be our knee-jerk reaction to, re to reading the word or hearing sermons or facing difficult circumstances in life. We should be pushed and compelled to prayer as a first response. Ask and you shall receive. Jesus continues and he says, seek and you will find. Seek and you will find. This is the second command and promise here in this text. And once again, he's, the sense here is to seek and to keep on seeking. We think about Luke 18 verse one, where Jesus instructs his disciples to pray and to not lose heart to not give up in their prayers, whatever they're praying for according to the will of God. When Jesus says seek here, that word gets at a diligent searching, actively pursuing God and his will and actively pursuing that which you prayed for. And this is important because the command for persistent prayer isn't permission for continual passivity in your life. Meaning, you can't just pray and then sit on the couch, not do anything and expect God to just make it all happen. Faith is not synonymous with disorder, nor a substitute for actually planning in your life. For example, if you're praying to God that he'll help you to pass a test, you still better study. <laughs> if 
you're praying to God for a, if you're praying to God for a job, please fill out some applications and go to interviews. Ask and you shall receive, but then seek and you will find. And if you're asking to know God more, if you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and, 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 and to grow in repentance and holiness, well, like Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Prioritize the word of God in your life. We are sanctified through the truth of the word. May the local church be important to you where you have intentional relationships for the purpose of growing in likeness to Jesus. There's a story of the great evangelist, uh, Dwight L. Moody. He was crossing the Atlantic Ocean uh, some years ago when a fire broke out on the boat that he was on. So obviously the crew and passengers and Moody himself started getting buckets of water to try to put out the fire. And then this overly spiritual man came to him and said, let's go to the other side of the ship and engage in prayer. It's a fire going on. They're trying to put out this fire. And this guy's talking about Moody, let's go over there and pray. So Dwight Moody responded, not so. We stand right here and pass buckets and pray hard the whole time. And this is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 8 when he says, seek and you shall find. It's like God in Jeremiah 29, 13, speaking to his people when he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Seeking God with your whole heart requires active faith. Asking you shall receive doesn't mean that you cease all movement, but in prayerful faith, you seek, if, and then God will direct you, lead you, and you shall find. Jesus continues in verse 7, and he says, Knock, and it will be open to you. Knock, and it will be open to you. This is the third command and promise here in this text. And the sense, once again, is for us to knock and to keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. So when you come in prayer persistently, knocking on heaven's throne room, wanting communion with God, to follow Christ, to please him in all of your life, whether it's school, work, your relationships, or whatever it would be to how you use your free time, wanting to live to the glory of God, when you knock on that door, God will answer. And Jesus saying, Knocking here, or using that picture of knocking, shows the intensity of our prayerful persistence that we are to have in following Jesus. Because continual knocking at a door means that a person is there to stay. You ever been at your house and a salesman comes to the door trying to sell you something, or a religious group that you should never listen to, and they know your home? They ain't leaving. They just knocking that door because they know you're home. They're saying, we are here. You're going to answer this door. You're going to hear us. You're going to get whatever I'm selling, whatever it may be. It's a funny picture to say that Jesus is saying when he says, knock and you shall find. It's, it's the disposition of saying, God, I want to know you. I want to serve you. I want to glorify you. I want to follow Jesus in this fallen world. I want to enter into life anew. And I'm not going anywhere. 
I'm serious about this. I'm not just asking, I'm not just seeking, but I am knocking at this door. And the one who knocks, God will see that that door is open. See, Jesus is calling us to prayerful persistence here, but in calling us to ask, to seek, and to knock, he's reminding us of our spiritual poverty and our need. He's reminding us of how, this, of how the Sermon on the Mount started. Blessed are the pure, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy and their poverty of spirit and that they're beggars before God. It is those who don't earn or achieve but receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin and, and receive comfort from the Savior. That's how this sermon began. So when Jesus says, ask, you shall receive, it's God who gives. When he says, seek and you shall find, it's God who directs, it's God who guides, it's God who empowers so that we find. And it's God who opens the door when we knock. And that's why the promise can be so sure in verse 8, that for everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. It's because God, our Father, is gloriously good. He's faithful. He's all-powerful, merciful, and compassionate. And he delights when we humble ourselves and pray to him. And he's trustworthy. He hears our prayers. He's near to the brokenhearted. And he's a shepherd for sufferers. This is the God that we serve. So in view of verses 7 through 8, I want to encourage you practically in your life, to recognize your need for God in following Jesus. Recognize your need for God in following Jesus and express that recognition of need through your prayer life. And may your prayers be shaped and formed and informed by the gospel. May you have gospel persistent prayer gospel confident prayer such that you draw near with confidence to God, knowing that you're coming to the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help in your time of need. And recognize that in your need for God that is, that, that is expressed in prayer to God, that God hears our prayers. How motivating is it for you to pray unto God, to petition for his help when, when you know that he hears our prayers? And let that be an encouragement for you to not give up on praying, to not give up on asking for God's help, to, of, of asking for God to open a particular door that's for your good and his glory, asking God to help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ in whatever it would be. And let this text encourage you Ask, seek, and knock with what 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, to pray without ceasing. To pray without ceasing. Now, to pray without ceasing doesn't mean to be a monk and to not do anything but pray. You're just in a cave and praying. To pray without ceasing means to do nothing without prayer. To do nothing without prayer. A small picture of this is if you go to a football game, or when I was playing football, what you'll see is so many guys on the team pray before the game. They pray before the game, they ask for God's help, and then they go out on the field, and they're just 
They play and act as if they're on their own. It's as if I've prayed to God, checked that off, and now it's all me. That's not how we live our lives as believers. We pray without ceasing in the beginning, in the middle, in the end, whatever it is that you are engaging in. Do nothing without prayer in your life. And also, I want to encourage you, in light of verses 7 and 8, to recall God's faithfulness in your life to answer prayer. Recall how faithful God has been in your life to answer prayer and let that quicken you to obey Jesus' commands to ask, ask, seek, and knock. And let it bolster your confidence in the promises that those who ask will receive and those who seek will find and those who knock, the door will be opened. H.B. Charles said this, God's faithfulness in the past is his resume for the present. May you recall God's faithfulness in the past to bolster your confidence to pray persistently in your present. So remembering that this text encourages us with the incomparable goodness of God our Father so that we'll prayerfully follow Christ our King. We've seen our first point in verses 7 and 8, the promises with persistent prayer. And we come to our second point in verses 9 through 11, the preeminence of our heavenly father, the preeminence of our heavenly father. So verses nine through 11 read, or, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So the picture Jesus is painting in verse 9, or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? He's saying, he's standing on this mountain speaking to people, and his word speaks to us today, that how many of you, as parents, if your kid came to you asking for a loaf of bread, would, would answer that asking by giving him rocks, by giving him some type of stone? And he says that because in, in his context in time, the flat bread looked like the flat brown stones that they had in, in Judea and Galilee and all those things. So they actually look similar to those hearing this comparison that Jesus is making. But it's a rhetorical, hyperbolic question. No parent would give their child rocks, which are inedible, instead of giving them bread when they ask for it. And then he says in verse 10, very similar, if he asks you for a fish, will you give him a serpent? If your kid asks you for some fish, would you give him a live snake? That'll be dangerous to him. No, that's really ridiculous. Who would do that? Jesus is getting at the fact that all parents want to provide for their children and see that they have what they need. But we see his main point in verse 11. When he says, if you then who are evil, and let's pause there, because Jesus distances himself from humanity here in this text. And now what I don't mean is that Jesus is not human. He is truly God and truly man. The fullness of deity dwelt bodily, born of a woman, born under the law. But Romans 8.3 says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
Jesus is without sin. He was tempted in every way and yet without sin. And that's why we need him. And that's the beauty of Christ, that he who knew no sin became sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. He bore our sin that we may bear his righteousness when we come to him in faith. That's the great exchange of the gospel and the glory of our Savior in Christ. But when I say he's distancing himself from humanity, it's in the fact that he says, if you then who are evil, Jesus is not evil. He's speaking about us. And he's saying that we are sinners by nature and choice. We are totally depraved. And in this context, with the parent illustrations and comparisons, he's getting at how we're naturally selfish. We're bent towards selfishness. Just look at or think about a precious a precious little baby, precious little child, one of the first things they learn to say is mine. Mine, not yours, but theirs. It's one of the first things they learn to say is because we are naturally selfish. And the point is, looking at verse 9 and 10, in light of that is you're naturally evil, selfish, a sinner by nature and choice. And yet, as a parent, you want to give good gifts to your children. You want to love and provide for them despite being summed up as evil. And that's what leads us to the preeminence, to the superiority, to the glory, and to the trustworthiness of our heavenly father. But Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven who give good things to those who ask him. This is an argument of the lesser to the greater. If the lesser father who is evil wants to give good things to his children, how much more will the greater father, our father in heaven being God, who is holy, righteous, and just, and faithful, and trustworthy, how much more will he give good things and be willing to give good things to his children, to open the door when they knock, to direct them so that they find, to hear their asking such that they receive. He's showing us the preeminence of God our Father. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount in full, you'll see that this is the 16th time that Jesus refers to God as your Father when speaking to his disciples. It is a main theme of this sermon that disciples of Jesus have a father in God above. So hear me here. I have no idea what your earthly fathers in this room were like. But if you were in Christ here today, you have a heavenly father in God who loves you and who cares for you and who hears your prayers and was eager to help you, evidence in the fact that he saved you and has given his son so that you may have life. God is not a cosmic stranger. He's not a distant deity. He's not the big man upstairs. He's a father who in love predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ who delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, who knows the amounts of hairs that are on your head. This is our holy, wonderful, gracious, merciful, faithful, patient father. Sinclair Ferguson said this, what sustains the rigorous exhortation 
to ask, seek, and knock is the sheer unmitigated generosity of our heavenly Father. He's not reluctant to give to his children as we ask, seek, and knock. Beloved believer here today, understand that prayer is enjoying God as your Father, as you cry out to him through Christ and dwelt by the Spirit. God, your Father, dear Christian, in his incomparable goodness, hears your prayer with open ears, with with open arms and extended ears, in abounding grace, in rich mercy, in great love for you in Christ. Michael Reeves said this, speaking of this text, Jesus stresses the willingness and attemptive kindness of God as essential to know for prayer. Through Christ, God is not only our Lord and judge, but our Father. So brother and sister here today, may you see God as your Father. For then you'll grow in assurance of your salvation, knowing that God is not against you, but he is for you. Who can bring a charge against you as his elect? It is God who has justified you. He is your Father who will keep you and hold you fast. Seeing God as Father will give you a greater eagerness to pray and joy in the Christian life as you follow Christ, knowing that the sovereign Lord of the universe is not a distant deity or a cosmic stranger, but your heavenly Father who has drawn you to himself. I also wanted to, I want to direct your attention back to verse 11 to notice that Jesus says that our Father in heaven gives good things to those who ask him good things to those who ask him. I love that word good because our father is sovereign in full control. He's omniscient. He knows all things and he's always on time. God is always on time. He's never late pertaining to your life and he always knows what he's doing. If you look at language and how people talk sometimes at weddings or when things really go someone's way, they say, wow, God really knew what he was doing this time. That's ridiculous. God always knows what he's doing. He always knows what he's doing in your life, even if it doesn't go your way. God is working all things together for your good and conforming you to the image of Christ. And he will give you good things. He will not give you anything that is sinful. He will not give you anything that will ruin you. He's infinitely wise and he knows what you need even before you ask him. And he knows what is good from bad. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we come to him in prayer and we're asking for something that we think is good, that we think is bread, but really it's a stone. Sometimes we come to God and we're thinking that it's, that it's a piece of fish, but really it's a serpent. And God knows what, what is good and what is bad. God knows what to give us and what not to give us. And he's always for our good and his glory. So trust in his infinite wisdom as you pray to him. Sometimes you may feel like I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking, and I'm not receiving. I'm not finding. The, 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 the door's not being opened. That rejection could be God's protection upon you. He is a father who cares for you. But the good things that God gives, Luke eleven thirteen, 13, says it's the Holy Spirit 
who is the seal and guarantee of our salvation as we come to Christ in faith. God gives us growth and repentance. God gives us sanctification as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He satisfies our hunger and thirst for righteousness. He cleanses our motives and consciences with the truth of his word and the gloriousness of the gospel. He gives us direction and wisdom for life as we pray to him and ask him for it. And he gives us all things that are for our good and his glory as he's given us the greatest gift in his son. So in view of this truth, the preeminence, the superiority, the greatness of our heavenly father, Christian here today, it is my prayer that you would see God as your father. I pray you would see him as your father, not just your creator, not just your maker, but as your father and cry out to him, Abba, just like Christ did. J.I. Packer said this, to address God as father and mean it is to understand the gospel well. May you pray to God as father and mean it when you call him that understanding that he has saved you by his grace through faith in Christ. Salvation is not something you've earned or achieved, but something you receive by faith in Jesus. He's justified you. He's legally declared you righteous by faith and clothed you in the righteousness of Christ. And now in sanctification, you are becoming what you are. You're, you're, you're becoming in practice what you are in position in Christ. And he's adopted you. He's made you his son and daughter, taken you from sinner and made you son or daughter. May you see God as your father. May you call him father and mean it. This is what the gospel does and brings about, makes us children of God. And also pray to God as your father. Take seeing him as father through the gospel and actually pray to him as that. Meaning don't pray to God as if he's this dictator or genie that you just have to throw or say something special and then he's just going to do what he's going to do or he's not going to do it. Trust in God's wisdom as you pray to him, as you petition to him and trust in his fatherly hand over your life as the divine architect for all circumstances, working things for your good and his glory. And pray persistently to your father, confidently that he is your father. And just really practically, that could look like praying specific prayers. Praying boldly, confident in Christ and the gospel, but specific prayers. Not just very vague things, but saying, Lord, if this be your will, I want this. For the good of your kingdom, for the glory of your name. So I can grow in Christ, so I can glorify you, whatever it may be. Give specific prayers to your father. He's good and he hears your prayer. But if anyone's here today and you're not a Christian, I want to direct your attention back to verse 11, where Jesus said, if you then who are evil, he casually described humanity as evil. And that's not merely being evil in comparison to another man, but it's evil before God. I hope you can understand and God opens your eyes to see that you are a sinner before a holy God and you've committed cosmic treason against your maker. He's made you to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And yet in sinfulness, we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. 
And the bad news is that we're sinners before a holy God. And the worst news is that there's a price to be paid. And the wages of sin is death. It's not just physical death, but eternal death. It's an eternal price tag because we sinned against an, an, an infinite, eternal, holy being. But the good news is that our God is not only holy and just and righteous, but merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And in his love, he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came truly God and truly man, and he lived the life that we refuse to live, tempted in every way and yet without sin. And Jesus, as the good shepherd, laid down his life for his sheep. And he died on the cross, being pierced for the transgressions of those who would come to him, being crushed for their iniquities. And on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, meaning paid in full. And he rose again on the third day because his sacrifice was sufficient. He, he took the wrath of God and he bore it all. And he is the son of God. He is the savior. And Jesus bids all sinners to come to him to repent of your sin and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scripture says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. You shall be saved. That is the best news. That if you repent and believe in Christ and trust yourself to Jesus, turn away from sin and any idea that you can work your way to God, Christ will save you. And he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Salvation is not a reward for righteous people. It's a gift for guilty people. And the statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you are here today and you are not in Christ, come to Christ. The gates of mercy are wide open. Today is the day of salvation. There's no reason to wait. Christ is bidding you to come. His gospel is good news. He will save you. You can be forgiven of your sin and have new life today. Come to Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. That there is salvation for you. And this God will then be your father. So we've seen the incomparable goodness of God our father in this text. And hopefully it pushes you to prayerfully follow Christ, your king. We've seen the promises of persistent prayer and the preeminence of our heavenly father. And before Hudson Taylor, famous missionary, left for China, he wrote this to an associate. He said, I'm taking my children with me, and I notice it's not difficult for me to remember that the little ones need breakfast in the morning, lunch at midday, and something before they go to bed at night. Indeed, I could not forget it, and I find it impossible to suppose our heavenly father will ever forget his children. Hudson Taylor said, I'm a very poor father, but it's not my habit to forget my children. But God is a very, very good father. And it's not his habit to forget his children. Disciple of Jesus, you have a father in God and he will not forget you. As you follow Christ, ask and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be answered. Because our Father cares, our Father hears, and he helps his own to persevere to the end until we see Jesus face to face. Let's pray. 
Father God in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can cry out to you in confidence because of the Lord Jesus Christ as Father. And we can trust that you are for us. And if God, you were for us, who can be against us? Father, please move us to be Christians who pray, Christians who cry out to you, Christians who recognize our need and express it through our prayer. May we trust that you hear us. May we trust that you answer us. May we know that when we work, we work. But when we pray, God, you work. You are faithful. You are Father. You are right, sovereign, and good. Christ is our King. Help us to follow him. I pray for these young people that they grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and that they'd be people of the word and people who pray in response to the goodness of the gospel of Christ and all that he's called us to do for his glory. Lord Jesus, you are supreme, you are sufficient, you are all that we need, and we thank you for your truth. In Christ's name, amen.